0: Welcome to ON AIR, a podcast from the AIR community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T-cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information, please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet, and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of On Air. Welcome to the 11th episode of On Air, the podcast of the air community with a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. Today we will discuss software as a medical device with Cinephone. Papa Dimitris from Yale University. Hello, Xenophon.
1: Hello. Good to meet you both. Good to be with you.
0: Xenophon is Professor of Biomedical Engineering and Radiology and Biomedical Imaging. The podcast is hosted by me, Ulrich Sterfbo.
2: And me, Cheng Ding. Hello, everyone, and welcome. So, Xenophon, uh, we always like to get to know our guests a bit more and hear about how do they get interested in... Um, and what they are working on, so for you, medical software, um, and a little bit about your journey, about how, in your career, how you got to where you are.
1: Yeah, now that's a good question. It's hard to know. So I started, I was working on a PhD, my research in medical image analysis, so I started working on medical images. And medical image analysis is a very computationally intensive area, and we have to write software to capture some of our ideas. I think the first time I had to seriously write something I was working on a cardiac deformation estimation project. And I needed colleagues in cardiology to outline hearts on MRI images. And there were no tools for that, so we had to write the tools. So that was probably my first major project. I mean, I have been programming since I was 14, so I have some exposure to software earlier than that. But the first real big project would be probably at the start of my PhD thesis. And things just stayed like that. You know, we develop tools. We want people to use them. So if you want people to use your tools, you have to package them into something that they can use. And so that's how my software and my research life have gone hand in hand, essentially.
2: Did you get first interested in software or more in in the science?
1: It's a good question. I guess I probably did software before I did science. I'm thinking back <laughs> in high school, I had a computer and I learned to program it. And, you know, if you do electrical engineering, computer science, which was my undergraduate. The two are not that different, right? I mean, it's this. it's not like in biology where software is something is completely unrelated.
2: Yeah, that's true. That
1: is for us, it was the same thing basically.
2: So for us in the AIR community, we're all very excited and optimistic about the utility of TCR and BCR repertoire in the clinical setting. Uh, However, most of that interpretation of TCR and BCR repertoire information requires a lot of computational analysis or software, AI, ML support, whatever you want to call it. Um, We know TCR and BCR repertoire analysis isn't something that you've directly worked on, uh, but given that you're one of the foremost thought leaders in the software as a medical device field, the air community thought that we could really benefit from your expertise in developing medical software and getting it through the regulatory process. And today we're hoping at a high level to kind of cover a little bit about that regulatory process of a software as a medical device Um, and sort of thinkings around uh, how it impacts the design and development of the software. Um, But maybe we can first start off with, you know, what is the regulatory process for software?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, disclaimers aside here, everybody here is an expert on a small piece of the puzzle. So I'll try to share some of my knowledge, probably a lot of my ignorance while we go through it. So if you look at the regulatory process for software, fundamentally software that would be used to either diagnose or treat a patient gets classified as a medical device. And that's a technical term which means that you have to get some sort of clearance of approval. Those are technical terms you don't need to worry about before you can sell, before you can put your software on the market. And that is sort of the core of it. So if you look at agencies like the FDA, there's sort of drugs, biologics and devices. So software is neither a drug nor a biologic. So by default comes under the same area as any other medical, hardware medical device that you can think of. So that's kind of the beginning of the process. You are under those rules, which means that both the process of creating the software has to be done in a manner that's compliant with those rules. There are sort of requirements at the submission phase. You have to document your design, your testing. And after you get permission to go to market, you also have to have a process, depending exactly on what you're selling, to monitor the software and to provide updates and feedback. So it's a whole, so the story starts at the start of the thinking about what the software is going to be, and it ends. and does not end until the retirement of the software. So the medical device manufacturer has to support their products. And now we're getting even more guidelines on cybersecurity and, you know, the need to be updating. So it's a, it's the whole process is covered by the regulatory system, not just the actual testing of the software, which is only common misunderstandings from outside.
2: I guess from the regulatory process, are not all software are considered a medical device or sort of like, what is that delineation? Is it just for?
1: So crudely, the delineation is if the software is going to use to diagnose or treat a patient, then almost certainly it's a medical device. There are all kinds of gray zones. There's something called clinical decision support with software to help a doctor arrive at a decision that theoretically they could have arrived on their own without software. There's a lot of gray zones, things that you would see on the various app stores for healthy lifestyles and diet and exercise. Those typically are not medical devices. But in general, the closer to get to something that involves diagnosis or treatment, the, cl- the more definite you are in the medical device category. You know, gray zones aside, which will always exist in regulation. But can
0: you go in a little bit more into details with this clinical support that you mentioned, software as, as clinical support? So, What exactly does this entail?
1: So there's a little bit of a controversy right now, actually, because the FDA's latest guidance on it seems to be tightening up what is what is not covered under the medical device. But let's take an example. You have a doctor here and they have a patient, they have five measurements, let's say, or five symptoms, and they are accepted guidelines perhaps from a professional society that says, well, if this is greater than this, and this thing is smaller than this, and the patient is of a certain age, you prescribe drug A, but if it's this scenario, you prescribe. So those guidelines exist. So theoretically, a clinical decision support software would be something that takes those inputs and implements those guidelines and outputs the suggested you know, treatment or drug to prescribe to a patient. So theoretically there, the system is just helping a doctor do something that they could have done on their own given enough time. So it's a time-saving device as opposed to a, you know, doing some measurement or some machine learning that the doctor couldn't have done on their own. So theoretically, it's transparent to the doctor, it's lower risk, it's there to help, but not to make decisions in any way. But... You know, people were using this category to get all kinds of other things through the system. Oh, this is so and the FDA just came out with guidance in September, end of September, that sort of tries to tighten this up. Now, who's right, who's wrong? There are arguments that the FDA has gone too far compared to what the original legislation intended. And you know, I'll, that's as far as I can get into this. This is I'm not a lawyer, so I'll let them figure it out. They'll tell us.
0: Does that mean then that, that this clinical support software it's also more? Um, simple, because it sounds like a lot of, if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's meant to be it's meant to sort of do what a doctor could have done. It means that the doctor should be able to understand all the steps. The FDA has also some subcategories in the latest guidance about there should be time, This shouldn't be for an urgent decision, but again, we're now into gray zones here that the lawyers will have to sort out over time. But the idea is that certain—not everything that gets used in a hospital software-wise—is a medical device, right? Microsoft Word is not a medical device, and if you use it to type up some patient report, the electronic health record, interestingly enough, is not a medical device. So the thing that runs the hospital—the you know image viewers by themselves do not qualify either. It's just when you get to the point we're touching diagnosis or treatment that is where the line tends to be now. Obviously, there's a lot of fuzziness about
2: that, right? Yeah, I guess, so speaking of diagnosis or treatment, um, uh, you know, TCR and BCR repertoire is a little hard to wrap around your head when you're not, you know, when you're an outsider. So I feel like the other equivalent that um, is probably further along or better known is maybe like CT DNA for uh, for cancers, right? At least for liquid biopsies. for diagnosis or as a prognostic biomarker, um, how do you are you familiar with that? And how the FDA views that genetic information?
1: I, I'm not. This is not my area. I can speak about imaging, which is probably the most common one. Actually, if you prefer me to, so I could give some okay. examples from that. Sure. So when you go to the the first step in the regulatory process is to establish was known as the risk classification of what you're proposing. And the risk classification simply says, well, if something were to go wrong here, how bad could it be for the patient? Are we talking about minor injury, major injury? You can extrapolate it all the way, obviously. So the first and the the thing that people often miss is that it's less critical as to what the software will do, but how it will be used. So the same exact piece of software could be medium risk or high risk, depending on the context. So take something like, you know, a diagnostic for detecting cancer from magnetic resonance images or CT images. If this is something that's going to be used as an aid to the doctor, like as a second opinion, or you know, to check, that probably would be a medium risk device because there's a doctor, it's a human in the loop, and that lowers the risk, presumably the human will see if there's a mistake. The same exact piece of software, if you were to use it on a completely automated mode, will probably become high risk now, because now the mistake, there's nothing between the software and the treatment decision, right? Or the diagnosis here. So that's the first step, and that determines everything. So depending on your classification, then the review process changes, the amount of detail they will ask for changes, whether you're doing a full-blown clinical trial or some sort of a prospective data evaluation. And that is where the line tends to be here.
0: So the more we remove software from from human interaction or the less human interaction there is with what comes out of the software, the more high risk it is, even though it will do the same thing uh, every time it sees the same kind of
1: data and the human may not... Yeah, I'm not sure that I would say that I would make that absolute statement. It's simply the, if the software goes wrong, what system of check and balances do you have in place? And you can imagine another scenario where, you know, is there a direct action from the software to doing something? Or is there a path? Is there time? The same applies to sort of wearable devices and, you know, monitoring heart rate, right? If the monitoring is simply a a case of, well, we're going to use this and plus lots of other information to come up to some thinking about the patient, that's a lower risk. If this is the thing we're going to use to decide whether the patient needs medication or surgery, that's a slightly different question, right? Because you're, you're using the same information, but how you use it determines what the level of risk is. You know, the same goes with everything else in life, right? You know, it's so how it will be used, not what it does, if that's sort of the fundamental principle of the regulatory process. There's a great example in one blog post uh, that they use a thermometer as an example. They said, you know, you a nurse uses a thermometer to measure a patient's temperature. And if it shows high, the nurse will touch the patient's forehead and then decide that's low risk. If the nurse doesn't touch the patient's forehead but gives medication, but the medication isn't going to kill the patient, maybe that's medium risk if it's the wrong medication. But if the, the nurse does the same thing and the medication could potentially have lethal consequences, now that's high risk. It's the same thermometer, right? But what's the level of... What, what are you using that reading for? So that's kind of one example.
0: You said that risk classification is... To- first
1: step. Did it get right? Well, it's the thing that determines everything else. So, yes.
0: <laughs> but what comes after, then, the risk classification?
1: Well, so the risk classification will determine, for example, what level of detail a regulatory agency will need about the design of your software. Do you need super detail? Do you need to tell them, a vague outline of what's in the software or do you need to tell them at some high level of detail what's in the software? It will determine what level of testing they would need to seek, right? a medium risk device, you may be able to get away with like retrospective evaluation on existing data A high risk device, you may be looking at a full-blown prospective clinical trial to verify. So it, it affects those things, it affects the process they use, So a medium-risk device, you may be able to survive with what in the United States is known as a 510k process, which is you claim there's already an approved device on the market that does something similar. And so long as you meet the same characteristics, you're okay. In a high-risk device, you are now on your own and you have to prove safety and effectiveness directly, not just equivalence. So the process gets a lot more expensive and a lot more involved. So the majority of software tends to go through the medium risk process, which means that, you know, human in the loop and all kinds of things to reduce that. But not everything, obviously, right? I mean, that there, there are things. That if you have a piece of software, and especially when the software is tied to hardware explicitly, right? Like something that's running on a pacemaker, now all of a sudden, there's no human in the loop, right? The pacemaker has to operate. So now you are into a high risk. Or if the software is going to be used to administer therapy directly. Now your safety profile goes up and they may need more details. So, just like everything else, right? If, if you're doing something that's more critical, we'll ask more questions. Well, if you're doing something less critical, we'll ask fewer questions. That's typically how it works.
0: And the FDA decides the um, risk uh, uh, classification. Yeah. I mean, you apply
1: and they negotiate and you go back and forth. <laughs> Because I imagine everyone would then like to be low-risk, low-risk, yeah. low yeah, no, low-risk I mean, classification. I mean, in the medical device world, goal number one is to be able to figure out that there's a predicate on the market, right? Somebody has done something similar that we claim that what we're doing for regulatory purposes is, is at least the same as them. We're going to do it better, we're going to have more features, but fundamentally it's the same, which means they, they have some notion of the universe. If you're proposing something new, then it becomes a challenge. You have to sort of explain why this is not high risk. And there is a process, the FDA has something called the de novo process for newer things that are not as high risk. And so you can go through that. It's a little more involved than the 510K, but it's it's not the same. And once one of those things goes through, then somebody else could use your device as a predicate and say, okay, if I prove something in this category. We're not doing anything new. So it's a legal system based on precedents, right? It's in the same as sort of the common law American-British legal system in some ways. That once you bless something, then something that's similar should also be okay by extension. But those are, of course, always a little bit in flux, right? It's, the roots go. So
2: Does that predicate have to be within the same indication or could it just be like, for example, the imaging-based, like imaging for tumors or imaging for, I
1: don't know, just the brain? It, it, it has to basically do the same thing. Okay. So you want something that detects tumors in mammograms, there better be another thing that detects tumors in mammograms, right?
2: Okay, and so it can't be tumors in brain versus tumors in in.
1: No, Got no. It. I mean, although it would help you potentially... If you had to go the other routes as well, this is not that different. So you know what the risk level is for this, so the risk level for that is not that different. But you can't use it as a predicate; it has to be similar.
0: Does this risk classification in any way relate to the
1: software de- development? I'm wondering. Yeah, I mean, so take for, take for example, there, there are standards for developing medical device software, medical software. So the requirements in those standards vary by your risk level. So do you need detailed testing? In higher software, the standards recommend that you do detailed testing. In lower software, you may be able to get just end-to-end testing, right? Just have users test it, but you don't necessarily tell them every little piece of this has been tested independently. Now, most software engineers would like to do that anyway, but I'm just pointing out that there was... or. What level of detailed design help? So if you think about software, right, software is just a series of blocks, like a flowchart. Now, what's the level of abstraction that you'd put into that flowchart? So the higher the risk, those blocks need to be more and more concrete, smaller and smaller. A lower risk thing, you can say, well, these are my major modules. Maybe the subsystems aren't as well documented in a lower risk thing, but in a higher risk thing, so it affects the level of detail in your work, the level of testing, the level of design, and obviously what data they would like to see in order to say, yes, this this flies. right? It's, it's the same. It's all, it's all of a piece. So it affects the whole story. It affects what level of support you need to provide. The entire quality process is just at a higher level. Then. And it's the same if you think about Testing treatments in a hospital, right? Something that's external is going to be a lower risk. Something that you try, you're testing a new drug, all of a sudden the requirements go higher, right? It's, it's all of a piece.
2: If we can take a step back, um, so if we're thinking about like sort of a scenario play, is if we're thinking about developing a software that has uh, diagnostic purposes, right? So, air sequences, probably the low-hanging fruit is diagnostics. It's already being used um, for hematological malignancies. Um, If we were just starting, what would that process be like? How would you think about it if we were students?
1: Well, first you have to, I would want to see that you're comfortable on the science, right? You know that this thing works and there have been studies that demonstrate that this thing works. Before you even worry about a product, right?
2: Okay, sure, we can use we can use the example, right. So for hematological malignancies, right? these are B cells that are, you know, hyperproliferative. so and then when we're looking at just the B cell receptor, we can identify that that patient because there's an increased number of those sequences that that patient has that cancer. Um, so in current currently the clinical setting is uh, for some leukemias and lymphomas um, this the sequences themselves uh, or the, sort of the higher frequency of those sequences t- tells a physician that uh, that patient is, most likely has you know that leukemia or lymphoma um, and then the loss of those the loss or decrease of that frequency of those sequences then suggests that that patient no longer has that disease which is then considered right they have they've um, as a diagnostic is that they've met the minimal residual disease criteria and they no longer have uh, that cancer they're cancer free um, and there's plenty of research around that there's um but then right now there, i don't th- i don't believe there's no next technically software for the analysis it's uh, pretty disconnected between uh universities and how they define that so if we were to do that
1: So if you were to do this and you're going to sell it, which means you have to get permission to get to the market, which means you're you're already a company of some form, right? You need to be a medical device manufacturer ultimately. So you need to set up a company. You need to set up some notion of a quality system, which is some procedures in place for how you do things. And because part of the process of developing medical software is to sort of demonstrate their do- you're doing proper work. In the FDA lingo, this is called design controls that you've, basically you design your software before you build it. You have procedures in place for who reviews the code, who tests the code, how you do things. So, you need to have some notion, at least at the start of the process, of a very basic at least quality system, some rules of the road, to ensure that the people who are doing the programming are trained, to ensure where you're getting your data, how you're storing your code, all of those things that are no different than any good software company would do if they're doing any serious work. Okay, Not your basement app developer, but something one step up from that. So you start there, and then you identify if I were thinking about designing a piece of software who my users are and what is the use case? The fundamental question, right? My user is some person who has some qualifications presumably, and some level of what the use case. The software will do What It will take these inputs and generate these outputs, crudely speaking. And from there, now you have your use case, what will the software do? You check with your favorite regulatory person if this is a medical device or if you can sneak it in under some other category. (laughs) If you can, then maybe everything I told you about having a quality system is unnecessary, but maybe you should have it anyway. And then based on that use case, you begin to design the software, the usual software process. What are the requirements? What does the software need to do? It needs to be able to read data from this scanner. It needs to compute this. It needs to help this. And then you start designing and building the software. And this it's a standard software engineering lifecycle. The big difference between, so if you were to hire somebody from outside the medical world to do this for you, The thing that they are often surprised is that there's a certain level of paperwork and documentation you have to keep track of in addition to just doing the programming. But otherwise, you know, it's a fairly standard software process in some ways. But then
2: meeting with the FDA, taking it in terms of defining that review process and what the...
1: So the FDA FDA for people who are starting will actually meet with people early in the process and do and review informally and give advice. So there are processes in place, you can request a meeting with the FDA, tell them what you're thinking, tell them what your your proposed testing plan is, and they will be helpful and they will work with people to sort of establish some guidelines. Before you go to the FDA, you should find somebody who's a regulatory expert, not me, I'm a professor. Find somebody who does this, who stands similar products, and they'll help you identify the lay of the land. By the definition of needing a quality system in place, that problem is you're already working with a regulatory consultant who's going to help you set that up. So you it's it's the same exact, uh, they, what I tell students sometimes is, you know, in science you're told, talk to your statistician early in the process so you don't, don't talk to them at the end, it's too late. The same applies to regulatory people. Talk to them early, so make sure you're doing things right from the beginning so you don't come to the end and it's just too late, you've missed something. Statisticians hate it when you come to them with just data at the end of the experiment, right? It's often too late for them to help you. Same story. So think of them as playing the same role. as statisticians. Okay. Yeah. People you need to talk to early and often, not at the end.
2: Yeah. That analogy will stick with me.
1: <laughs> such, a, such a software
0: is then low-risk category, right? Because it would not do anything to the patient. It would just help the doctors maybe make an informed decision. It would probably be one of many inputs to the doctor.
1: Yeah, it, it would depend on, it would probably medium risk. real. So that is something you have to negotiate with them. And if you can claim that it's just simple clinical decision support, in general, anything that involves patterns on complicated data or anything that involves analyzing images doesn't seem to come under that category. So it would be a medium grade medical device. A medium, there's nothing low risk with software. And at the point we're with software, things get into it, because you could mislead a doctor into providing something, right? Mm-hmm. So, you would do your design and you would sort of then go on to verify that it's accurate, right? You would have a certain set of data. So, the FDA's clinical evaluation guideline basically tell you they want to see three things when it comes to like software. And this is not just an FDA guideline, it's an international guideline, the FDA adopted It's plausible, and this is the question I was asking before, like, you have some good science that tells you that what you're measuring is likely to be useful, helpful in the doctor, right? If we, if we could do this, you believe it. There is enough science to back you up. There is a notion of accuracy, like, what you're measuring is accurate. Like, when we say there's this level of expression, is this level of expression plus or minus some acceptable error, but not too far. So, you have to do like a quantity, you know, a technical validation. And then the last thing they want to see is some sort of clinical utility, right? That you could use this successfully in a patient setting to make decisions, right? So, so that's kind of the lay of the land there.
0: How is it with imaging? Because I'm thinking in such a software that that Ching is talking about, um, um, the input data um, might be problematic. So depending on sampling probabilities, you might have something out. How is this with, with images? So there you have a good idea where to look or is that also somehow sometimes a bit of hit or miss?
1: So in images you probably have built a database. Let's say you're doing a retrospective study right? you build a database of data of images ideally from more than one hospital with human experts having gone in and labeled what the result should be and then you build your algorithm to try to replicate that, and you demonstrate some accuracy level. And this is where the, if you're doing something that's already been, has gone through FDA, you know what level of accuracy you need to hit because they have a proof, so they have cleared something before at that level of accuracy. With images, we have sometimes, you know, iterative, iterative variability issues, like not every human expert will rate the same thing the same. But there are studies, there are tools for figuring that out. You may have to have three raters and two of them agree with you, or you are within the bounds of their level of agreement. There there are, you know, this varies from case to case. If you're doing this for the first time, you may have to develop those measurements and what those standards should be. But in general, it has to be good enough to be useful. Right? If it's if it's not helpful. And ultimately, even if you went through the regulatory process, like people think of the regulatory process as the end of the world, right? That's like we've succeeded. No, it's just the start of the story. Then you have to convince people to buy it, right? The fact that you went through the regulatory process doesn't mean anybody's going to want it. So, I, I guess
2: sort of another question I had, I guess that I wasn't completely understanding is: so there's software as a standalone, right? Software as a medical device, and then there's mm-hmm. software as part of a physical medical device right? for the tcr-bcr sequences would our medical device or physical medical device be the actual like sequencing or the kind of kits that we're using right like we have to have right um certain sets of primers certain set of 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 um controls etc um, mm-hmm. just to generate that data so
1: so yeah, so that's a good question. The usual answer to everything in life is that it depends. <laughs> so is the rest of it already in standard use?
2: It's, it's not standardized fully. So that's why I, I'm kind of, right? Like the most ideal situation is if it was standardized, which then probably would make it into.
1: So take our case with imaging, right? If the imaging device is already in existence in the hospital, it's already been used by humans to read the scans, Then software as a medical device. So the definition of software as a medical device is you're running on standard hardware. You're not using any custom hardware, right? So you're running on a phone or a computer that people would use for all kinds of tasks. You haven't built the hardware yourself. So there's nothing about the hardware that's interesting. Or the hardware is already approved in some way. Like a CT scanner has already gone through the process. And so we're getting images from already a device so the easiest way if I'm a software developer is, I want your measurements to have been already gone through, like that you can measure these things that your assays are okay, etc. If it's not, if you're developing a whole system, of which the software is a small piece, then you get into different category, which you know I wouldn't be the person to talk to, obviously. But then your risk classification is the risk of the system. The use case is the use case of the system, right? So when when we we as engineers design a system, we do the following. We take the whole universe and we divide it into two parts. The part that we care about, that's our system, and everything outside our system. And we define the boundaries of our system, what comes in and what goes out. And we are responsible for what's inside, and we trust the rest of the universe for the rest of it. Right. So if I'm writing software, I assume that the images are acquired by somebody, and I'm giving you a diagnosis that a doctor will take into something. If now I'm designing the hardware as well as the software, now my system is software plus hardware, and my input is a patient, potentially, and my output is something else. So it depends on what the boundaries are, how accepted the other things are in a situation, and, uh, you know, it, it gets complicated quickly the moment. And if you're doing both chemistry and software, things get a little bit more interesting and, uh, not quite something I could talk to you with any kind of knowledge here.
2: So I guess one, I guess a general question, and I think I know your answer, but <laughs> um, with all of these, you know, like with all these big data that we're getting from, um, you know, all these digital inputs, uh, whether that's, um, you know, your, your Apple watches or from all of the uh, MRI and CT scans that we're collecting from patients all around, do you think... Uh, these machine learning and AI software are going to replace physicians and doctors, or is it always going to be kind of a supporting role?
1: I mean, for some tasks, probably for everything. I mean, it depends, right? Uh, Again, there's always in medicine, in the United States in particular, as I'm sure you're well aware, we have issues of liability too. right? Whose liability is it? And that probably at least for the foreseeable future, it means that all of this stuff is going to end up as an aid to a doctor, something to help them, as opposed to something that will replace them. Because somebody always has to look at it to make decisions. But how much the doctor does and how much the computer does, that balance may change over time.
2: So then in the future, far future, do you, like, what do you see how software is in the medical software plays a role in, in the healthcare system?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, if you think about what we do with software tools or any tools in medicine, we're trying to do one of three things. At least that's what I tell my students, which may not be super accurate, but let's let's go with this. We're trying to do things better. Right? Something that we can't do right now and we want to, we want to do prognosis as opposed to just diagnosis. I right? want to do some forecast. Better is one category. Cheaper is another category. Right, We're able to do the same thing but at lower cost. And maybe the third category which is related to cheaper in medicine is we're trying to let a less trained person do the same task as a more trained person because we make it easier to do. And so we don't need... You know, the world's foremost radiologist to look at a particular kind of scan, maybe a less trained radiologist who's still a very well-trained person, but maybe not as trained as, you know, maybe a top 20% radiologist as opposed to top 1% radiologist can use the tool to arrive somewhere. So in that sense, you know, if you look around hospitals, a lot of what medical software is used for right now tends to be efficiency improvements and like very low-hanging fruit that could have to help optimize the flow of patients through and to optimize a lot of the measurements and to allow doctors to have information when they need it and to assemble information and those things if you take your average software engineer and take him to a hospital the first the first reaction this reaction of my students when they go see what happens in practice they want to pull their hair out like you mean they don't do this already? <laughs> But the reality of the healthcare system is that, no, we don't do this already for all sorts of reasons and complications. And so there's a lot of lots of no-hanging fruit there. And then it would progressively be, you know, in radiology, we're seeing a lot of tools to help do you know, computer-aided diagnostics. You know, that's one area we're seeing a lot of uptake. If you look at what the FDA has cleared in terms of machine learning... The great majority of it is radiology applications, right? Pathology applications are probably are coming. Similar idea with images. This, you know, and there are other things that are coming along as well. But I think the beginning will be, you know, helping doctors and making them more efficient as we understand how to, when to trust it and when not to trust it, when it fails, what are the failure cases. And we know that, are, you know, machine learning algorithms can fail in surprising ways sometimes. And so I'm not sure we're going to be ready to trust them 100% for like, you know, critical issues. On the other hand, if you're talking about a scenario where we have no medical care in a particular part of the world, you know, maybe something that fails occasionally is better than nothing. So it's your standard risk-benefit analysis. Like, what happens if something goes wrong? Is it better than the alternative? And you know, I, we will find out soon enough, but uh, you know, there's a lot of hype, obviously, right, and you know, the hype is overblown, obviously. I mean, uh, we joke that in our field, machine learning is kind of like what stem cells in to biology. Like finally outsiders want to talk to us. <laughs> there's a lot of hype that it will solve every problem known to man. And just like stem cells, you know, there have been successes and failures. I think machine learning is going to have similar stories when we look for back 20 years from now and say, oh, we were really optimistic about this.
0: <laughs> so if I should make a conclusion for, for this podcast, it's, then I would say it's all about risk classification. It's all about making medical software
1: better, cheaper, and easier to use. Is that about right? Yeah, and with risk classification comes risk management, Right being aware of the fact that things will go wrong and having processes in place to manage that risk and understanding when that risk is acceptable and when that risk is unacceptable. And if the risk is unacceptable, then we don't do it. And if the risk is, the risk may start out as unacceptable, but we have ways, checks and balances, humans in the loop, or whatever techniques we have to know that risk to a level that's acceptable for human use, for liability, for everything, right? It's the same story for everything as
0: well. And this brings us then to the end of the 11th episode of On Air, the podcast of the air community with a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. Please go to the website antibodysociety.org to get more information about our sponsors. If you have any comments or questions, drop us a line at on air at aircommunity.org or tweet using the hashtag on air with to us. Cinephone has a book out uh, if you want to hear more about medical software, it's called Introduction to Medical Software, Foundations for Digital Health Devices and um, Diagnostics. Okay.
1: Thank you.
2: We will return in one month's time with more thoughts on the clinical use of air sequencing. All links and contact information are in the show notes below. The podcast is edited by Abdul Aziz of the comedy podcast Spout Lore. Thank you for listening to On Air. Bye-bye now.